Amen. Thank you so much for reading and Carla for that lovely prayer. Um, do keep your Bibles open there, please, at uh, Genesis, back to Genesis 23. Um, as you've heard, I'm Mike, one of the pastors here, and can I have my welcome to the Steventon and Maddox families? It's great to have you with us today. Uh, our practice is to go through a passage, of the, a, a book of the Bible or a section of the Bible and uh, see what God has to teach us in it. So I'm going to speak on Genesis 23. I want to show you a picture first of all. Hopefully it's going to come up on the screen. There she is. Uh, <clears throat> this is uh, Je Je Jean, John Calmont, at her 121st birthday party. You see, she's, uh, actually, you can't quite see it. Though. She's got a cake with 121 on it. This lady, Madame Calmont, lived in France for her entire life. She became famous at the age of 113 when journalists working on the life of Vincent van Gogh visited her. Madame Calmont had met van Gogh as a young girl working in an art shop. She recalled selling him some colored pencils. She described the artist as very ugly. <laughs> and then she added, he was ungracious, impolite, sick, dirty, badly dressed, and disagreeable. <laughs> so over a century later, at the age of 114, she appeared in a film called Vincent and Me as herself, making her the oldest person ever to appear in a movie. Madame Calmont married her husband, Fernand. He was wealthy. It made it possible for her never to work. Maybe that's why she lived so long. She led a leisurely life pursuing hobbies such as tennis, swimming, roller skating, and opera, though not all at the same time. Fernand died in 1942 after eating a dessert prepared with spoiled cherries. How French. At the age of 90, she signed a deal to sell her apartment to a lawyer. He agreed to pay her 2,500 francs a month until she died. She was 90. No doubt he thought he was onto a good deal. Madame Calmont collected the payments for 32 years even after the lawyer himself had died. <laughs> she enjoyed remarkably good health. At the age of 85, she took up fencing, and she continued to ride her bike until she was 100. She was a smoker, but gave it up after 96 years. <laughs> On the 4th of August, 1997, she died in peace at the age of 122. You're asking what was her secret. Madame Calmont ascribed her long life to three things olive oil, port wine, and eating a kilo of chocolate a week. Now, in our Bible passage today, the matriarch Sarah dies at the ripe old age of 127, so five years older. But unlike Madame Calmont, it was not a peaceful life of ease in her family home. With her husband Abraham, she left her home because of the call of God. God promised Abraham a great name and a great family with a great land to live in. And he promised him protection and blessing. And God even said that through Abraham's family, the entire world would be blessed, that the peace and joy and goodness of God's life would come to the world through the descendants of this one man. It's a big promise. And they listened to God's voice, and when he said, get up and go, they got up and went. And that was many, many years before chapter 23. Sarah embraced uncertainty and she lived in hope. 
And now, at the age of 90, well past childbearing age, she heard God say he would give her a miracle baby. And she laughed. She laughed, actually, in bitterness and cynicism. But nothing is impossible for God. She learned that lesson. And a year later, she had that baby, a bouncing boy called Isaac, which means he laughs. Her laughter was turned to joy. And by chapter 23, where we are today, Isaac is in his 30s. And verse 2 says that Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And a husband of all those years, Abraham, wept aloud and mourned for her. And after all that we've learned in the life of Abraham, we never read before that Abraham cried. But here, the one time, Abraham weeps out loud and grieves for his wife. But you know, there is something really strange about this chapter, if you think about it. That she's died and it spends two verses on Sarah's death. And all the rest of the time is spent describing the negotiations for a burial plot. Why is that? Whenever the Bible does something odd, you have to stop and ponder because it's doing something deliberate. For some reason, these negotiations for a burial plot are very significant, but why? Now, the story of Abraham and Sarah again and again, as we've been learning, is, is a story of faith. It's lessons in the life of faith and the God of promise. And here, right at the end of Sarah's story, we're learning yet more about faith. And the New Testament says that these things were written down for our benefit, they're for us. So what do we learn here? I've just got two lessons about faith here this morning. By the way, the first one's much longer than the second one in case you start to give up the will to live. Two lessons about faith. Firstly, faith's partial fulfillment. Partial fulfillment. And secondly, faith's temporary status. Partial fulfillment, temporary status. There they are on the screen. Point one, faith's partial fulfillment. Back in chapter 12, at the beginning of this saga, God had said, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. And in verse 7, God had promised, to your offspring I will give this land. Now this follows, doesn't it? If you're going to have a big family, like the Steventons, you need to have a big place to live. And if your family's going to become a great nation, then you need to have plenty of space to live. You're going to need a great land. It's not going to work just moving out to Epsom. And then in chapter 13, verse 14, God actually underlines this and he says, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northwards, eastwards, southwards, westwards, you know, look all around, see, scan the horizon because all the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. Arise, walk through the length of the land and the breadth of the land for I will give it to you. Now, when the owner of the whole earth and the, the maker of the stars says he's going to give you a place, it's a pretty good promise, isn't it? You can bet your life on that. It's pretty categorical. But here's the thing. After more than 50 years, they still don't own a square inch of this land. 50 years of camping. They left everything based on the promises of God, and here they are in the promised land, and they don't own a square inch. And now Abraham has to make a crucial decision, actually, for the future of the family. Where is he going to bury his wife? Here in Canaan, where they're immigrants, or go back home to Ur, 
where the, the ancestral grave is and the, the, the history. Now, this is not just a practical question. It is a theological question. Can God be trusted on his promise for the future? It's a question of faith. Because they still haven't seen it yet. You see, we can't underestimate how important family graves were in those times. You do get a hint of it in old English graveyards. In this country, you stroll down, if you go to the nearest old grave churchyard, you will see family graves. Generations were buried together in the same plot. And that was even more important in the ancient world. The end of the book of Genesis, chapter 50, Joseph makes his family swear a solemn oath that they will carry his bones up from Egypt back to Canaan so he can be buried there. It's so important to him. His last thing he asks his family to promise is, don't leave my bones here in Egypt. Take them back home to Canaan. Why is it so important? Because where your bones are buried is a statement about where you belong. You get buried in the place you call home. And once again, we see that Abraham's faith is being tested. What is he going to do? Get on his donkey and go back to what everybody in his culture would say was sensible, the right thing to do, proper decorum, or stake a claim based once again on the promises of God as a senior man. And he does the latter. Once again, he takes his stand on the promises of God. He shows at the end of life, in the, 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 the years where the, the, things are going darker and, and he's less energy and, and time is pushing on, he shows he's still relying on the promises of God. So he enters into a, a, an ancient Near Eastern negotiation. And this negotiation, by the way, is almost comical. Um, the parties are very polite and they all display all the right courtesies. They bow, they give compliments, but under the surface it is a hard-headed negotiation and Abraham is not going to back off. Now I once entered into a negotiation in a, a, a shop in Turkey. I wanted to buy a beautiful hand-woven rug for some friends who were getting married and I soon learned that Turkish salesmen know how to negotiate. Some of you are laughing, maybe you've been in that seat. They don't just sort of let you walk around the shop and look at the things. Oh no, no, they sat me down and with my friend gave us a cup of mint tea, said what an honor it was that we went into the shop, told me that I had lovely blue eyes. <laughs> and then they tried to take me for all I was worth. <laughs> and that, that's what's going on here. First of all, look at verse 4. Abraham says, I'm a foreigner and stranger among you. Sell me from some property for a burial site so here I can here so that I can bury my dead. Now they can see that he's still in mourning for his wife. For all we know, he still has torn clothes and ash on his head. You know, he's a man who's grieving and he says, let me give my wife a proper burial. And they reply in verse 6 with some lovely compliments. Sir, listen to us. You are a mighty prince among us. You know, you can feel them buttering him up here. Do I look like a piece of toast? How come you're buttering me up? You're a mighty prince, sir. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will refuse you his tomb for burying your dead. And it sounds really generous, doesn't it? But do you see what they just did? They only agreed to half of his request. They completely omitted the other half. They're not top talking about giving him property here. They're talking about storage space. 
And that means Abraham would no, have no permanent burial site in the land, no place to call his own, nowhere for the family tomb, which effectively means no foothold in the promised land for the future. And you know where this would be heading, don't you? As soon as Abraham has passed away, those bones in the tomb belonging to foreigners, they're going out with the recycling. But Abraham wasn't born yesterday, and he sees what's going on. So in verse 7, he enters into the spirit of things, and he rises and he bows down low before them. And it says here he bowed before the people of the land, which kind of underlines, doesn't it, that it's their land at the moment. And he says, if you're willing for me to bury my dead here, ask Zac Ephron for the cave of Machpelah. Now, he's not called Zac Ephron, all right? Just trying to keep you with me. He's called Ephron, which he owns. For all I know, he's an ancestor of Zac Ephron. And he talks about this field, the cave of Machpelah, which belongs to him. It's the end of his field. Ask him to sell it to me. He says, I'll pay full price for it as a burial site. I'm not trying to get a bargain here. Full price. But verse 9, he insists it will be sold properly at the end of the field as a permanent burial ground. That means no one will ever be able to move the goalposts later on. And I want to do the deal in your presence, he says, so that everyone knows about it. It's legal and public and fair and square. And Ephron is sitting there. And I just I have a mental picture of him stroking his beard. And he's thinking, this guy is vulnerable. <laughs> he thinks... He starts to, do you know how characters in cartoons will sometimes see pound signs? Ka-ching! This guy's got shekel signs. <laughs> he thinks, this old boy is vulnerable. How much I can take him for? So in verse 10, he joins in. And he's sitting among the people, and he replies that everyone's hearing. And again, it's very charming. It says here, it's at the gate of the city. And whenever you read about the gate of the city in the Old Testament, the gate is where official business is transacted. A bit like, I suppose, the town square in, in England of many years ago. The gate is where the elders of the people assemble, and legal transactions are done at the gate. So that's what's going on here. And he's, he, this man speaks up, and he makes an offer. Again, he looks like an offer you can't refuse. He says, um, listen to me, my lord, hey, my friend. I'll give you the field. I'll give you the cave that's in it. I'll give it to you in the presence of my people. Bury your dead. Now, this appears to show respect for Abraham, but it actually keeps him in debt. Ephron comes across as being magnanimous. But if Abraham accepts this gift, then he really remains landless. No ownership, which is really what Ephron wants. So it's Abraham's turn to bargain, and respectfully but firmly, he reiterates his offer. Look at verse 12. Again, Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in their hearing, listen to me, if you will. I will pay the price of the field. Accept it from me so that I can bury my dead here. All of a sudden, Ephron figures out, uh, this guy's going to buy it, and I can charge him an arm and a leg, so he decides he's going to go all out, and in verse 15, 14 and 15, he names his price. Listen to me, my Lord. The land is worth 400 shekels of silver, but what is that between me and you? Bury your dead. 400 shekels is 54 kilos of solid silver, or those of us who work with old money, 100 pounds 
weight of silver. Can you imagine that much silver? Now, some people at this gate are probably gasping. (laughs) And the eyes have gone wide. We don't know exactly how much land cost at this time. We don't know how big the property was. So we're unable to say exactly how much Ephron ripped him off. But we do know this is overpriced. Over a thousand years later, King David bought the entire site of the Jerusalem temple for 50 shekels. This guy's asking 400 for a field and a cave. He's pumped the price up. And given the tone of the conversation, it looks like he's drawing a line. If you want to buy this, pal, it's going to cost you. Now, in a classic property negotiation, what would we do at this point? Do you remember the program Location, Location, Location with Kirsty and Phil? who used to enter into uh, real estate situations, Phil, with his charming manner and his straight-to-camera style, could explain that while Ephron's cave is in an out-of-town location, it does have the advantage of a field and several trees and the opportunity to to extend in the future, maybe a loft conversion. Let's get Ephron's agent on the phone and see if he'll take 200 shekels. But Abraham does no such thing. He takes the hit. In verse 16, he weighs out the silver according to the market rate and he pays the full asking price, a cash buyer. He gets it all, the field, the cave, the trees. And all of it is legally deeded to him in the presence of the witnesses at the gate of the city. This deeding of the land is mentioned twice to underline for us to get the point. Abraham is now a legal landowner after all these years. And yet... What has he got? An expensive burial plot. In the context of Sarah's death, why so much emphasis on this piece of ground? Friends, it teaches us that Abraham and Sarah did not exhaust God's promises in their lifetime. This is for us. Abraham and Sarah did not exhaust God's promises to them in their lifetime. They just got a toehold in the promised land. They just got the very the ice cube at the tip of the iceberg. They just got one miracle baby, Isaac, and a burial cave. The fulfillment of all these promises is still very distant. Which is why in the New Testament, Hebrews 11 says this, All these people died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Abraham buried Sarah in the land of Canaan, knowing that gaining the full land was still yet to come. He bought a field and a cave in hope. Abraham buried Sarah knowing that the multitude of descendants was still a long way off, Isaac is just one son, but he represents God's promise for the future. Abraham buried Sarah knowing that he was still a stranger and an exile on the earth, learning to be content with God's timing to establish his promise. Ephron walked away with an unbelievable haul of silver, but you can't take it with you when you die. Abraham walked away with not just a place to bury Sarah, but a place pointing to an inheritance that he would never lose because he knew that God is faithful and he always keeps his promises. 
So Abraham buried Sarah knowing that most of faith is about obediently pressing on. The better city, the better country is still in the future, but God will bring him home. Now, Christian friends here today, we, this is for us. We live this side of Jesus, this side of Jesus' cross and his resurrection, but we don't have it all now. And we mustn't be fooled into thinking we can. We, too, live in future hope to a far greater coming reality, the world to come. I love these songs we sang today, these songs the musicians chose, all looking forward to that home of heaven. God has much, much more in store for us than we have in the present moment, or that we can even imagine. Somebody's painted a quote from C.S. Lewis in the loft of our house, and I love just lying on the bed there and looking at this quote. There are far, far better things ahead than any we leave behind. C.S. Lewis. There are far, far better things ahead than any we leave behind. Faith is always living with partial fulfillment, waiting for the Lord's return. Amen? I told you the first point was longer. The second point is briefer. Faith's temporary status. Faith's temporary status. Look, look back again at verse 4. Look at how Abraham describes himself, this senior patriarch, this man of God. I am a foreigner and a stranger among you. Two really interesting words often found together in the Old Testament. This word foreigner that was translated foreigner means a temporary dweller, a newcomer with no inherited rights. In Germany, they used to call them Gastarbeiters, guest workers. They're just guests working here. They can go home afterward. A foreigner living in an alien land. He's an immigrant. Such people, separated from their own people, are prone to exploitation, aren't they? They are in London. They're outsiders. And the second word, stranger, it means a sojourner, somebody who's only temporary, passing through. They don't have the rights of settlers. They're dependent on others. We might say they have a temporary visa. They're only here as long as we give them permission. It appears to mean someone who's even more on the fringe of society, therefore more vulnerable. This is the status of the great father of faith after more than 50 years of trusting in the promises of God. He is a foreigner and a stranger. This is the status of Abraham after binding Isaac in obedience to God's harrowing demand. This is the status when Sarah dies, not owning a square inch, temporary settlers. And the New Testament teaches that this is the status of all Jesus' followers in this world. That we're all exiles and strangers. We are travelers in this world. It is not our home. We're going through to the promised land. We will never be fully at home here, and we should not expect to be fully welcomed here. Because the people of this world know that we're not really part of it. And they either fear that or loathe it. Our citizenship, if you're a Christian here today, your citizenship is in another country. Regardless of what your passport says, we look forward to a better home. Peter, the apostle, says, Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, 
to keep away from fleshly desires that war against your soul. Hebrews, which uh, Carla read for us earlier on, says this. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he didn't know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land. Like a stranger in a foreign country, he lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. This week, one of our members, Reese Laverty, published an article about Chesington in an online paper called The Plough. It is a fascinating article. recommend it to you. The headline is, Somewhere in Chesington, my hometown debunks the idea that family-friendly neighborhoods are a thing of the past. If you want to read it, it's at the website. It's plough, P-L-O-U-G-H dot com. And Reese talks about the work of a man called David Goodhart, who divides people into basically two categories, somewheres and anywheres. The anywheres are people who kind of could come from anywhere, and they derive their identity from things like education and success and career. And it really doesn't matter where they live or where they come from, and they can move around a lot because it's all about education and the career and the success. But somewheres are people who derive their identity from a deep sense of place and local community, They're people with roots in one place and multiple generations live there. And Chessington is a somewhere kind of place. And there's a lot of good in that, many blessings. People tend to stay here, put down roots, live near their family. You can have mum, dad, grandparents, great-grandparents, siblings around the corner. Instead of moving out to a bigger place, they'll have a loft conversion. So Chessington is a good town to be a builder. Now, I've heard a phrase here a few times in the year or 18 months since we've moved back. This phrase really caught my ear. The phrase is this. We thought that this would be our forever home. People are talking about a house they bought. We thought this would be our forever home. Forever home. You know, that's a settler instinct, isn't it? The desire to buy a place big enough to stay in, raise a family and put down roots. It's good to have such a home. But we need to ask, is this the call of God on our lives? Is God really calling us to make our forever home here? To be as comfortable as possible. To make sure we have plenty of support networks around us to work hard, have nice holidays, and pay off the mortgage. To feel safe and secure right here and now. Is that God's call on our lives? Is it? No, it's not. It's not the call of Christ. Jesus Christ calls us to belong to another kingdom. To live in this place like strangers in a foreign country. Because we're looking forward to the city with foundations. The home of righteousness the world to come, the new Jerusalem. So our status here will always be temporary. This world is beautiful, isn't it? It's full of so many blessings. We're celebrating that today with Rob and Helena. But it's not our ultimate home. 
And if you live as if this is not your ultimate home, then you will be a better neighbor. Because if you're living as if this is not your only home and your place, you will be free to be generous and love your neighborhood far more than those who have nothing else to live for. I'm talking to those of you who, are, who might be described as someones. I also want to talk to those who are anyones. Because ultimately, if you're an anyone, an anywhere, someone who, who, who has gone through education, you've been successful, you've got a career, your life is mobile, you're upwardly mobile, you've experienced social lift, if you are such a person, then you too are no less called to live for the future. Because your career, your education, your achievements are ultimately just for here and now. And if you're an anywhere who's come to our church and you're finding it hard to settle in, I'm really sorry about that. I think it's something we have to grow in as a church. Because many of us have know each other and have long-standing relationships and our social needs are pretty well catered for. It can be very, very hard for new people to come in. Somebody recently said to me, I realized they were all related. Now, we're not all related. You know. <laughs> but the point, another person commented that they came to the church and sat at the back. It was the first visit. And two men came and asked her to move because they said it was their seat. Please, let's never let that happen again. Let's let the anywheres feel at home here in this church. But let's all of us be looking forward to the future. Rob, Helena, you've testified this morning. You're bringing up four children to know the Lord Jesus Christ. You have dedicated yourselves to bring them up as citizens of the kingdom of Jesus. To look forward to the future. To be people who have an everlasting destiny. And friends, Christmas is a great time for us all to examine our hearts about this. Because Christmas for many people is a disappointing experience. Don't just dismiss me as a humbug, okay? I know that's what my wife is doing right now. For, for many people, Christmas is a disappointing experience. And for some people, Christmas is actually very stressful and painful and even bitter. Because Christmas, the way we celebrate Christmas, holds out this promise of this great warmth and security and comfort, but it actually fails to deliver. By the time you finish the dinner and you've got to pick up the tinsel and put all the paper in the recycling bin, the things we've reached for at Christmas are the promises of satisfaction and security right here and now, and it can never, ever satisfy. So let's examine the pull of our hearts this Christmas, if you feel that. Am I falling in love with the things of this world too much? Am I resenting the demands of faith to be obedient, to be enduring, to be excluded? Or am I falling more and more in love with Jesus Christ with every passing year and yearning for a better tomorrow to be with him where he is? May God give us grace to grow in these things. Let's pray. By faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Loving Heavenly Father, give us the grace to do that too. Amen.